Well, good morning and welcome once again to our virtual service. Uh, um, apologies for starting a few minutes late. Um, we had some technical difficulties that we were um, working on. Um, we thank God for this Sunday once again. Um, unfortunately, we're still unable to come together and meet as a church, but we thank God for His Word that continues to speak to us, um, His Word that is alive, His Word that is powerful. And may God bless the preaching and the reading of His Word this morning as we hear in the comfort of our homes, even as we long for um, coming together once again as the church. Let me read. Um, we've been uh, going through a series in First John um, titled, Am I Really a Christian? And we have um, um, gone through a couple of sermons already. Um, I want to draw your attention this morning to First John chapter 2, verse 12 to 17. And we're looking at it in the subject of the love God hates. The love God hates. First John chapter 2, verse 12 to 17. Before we begin, let me open up in the word of prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, our Lord and God, it is a joy to draw near to you, to hear your word, to be refreshed by your sweet words. Remember the words of Peter when he says to our dear Lord, when he says, um, where else can we go? For you have the words of life. Indeed, your words are the words of life. May we find comfort in them. May we find encouragement in them and may we be rebuked by them so that we can walk in your ways. Thank you for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who has given us a new life. And may when we hear your word this morning, be transformed in our inner beings. In the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Now, let me start by... by noticing this, that the soccer season is upon us once again. After about four months of an unsolicited rest, they have resumed the NetBank Cup. And as always, emotions are running high. One thing that I've never been able to understand, no matter how much I tried, is soccer fans. For them, soccer is a big deal. You'll see it in the gear they wear of their favorite teams, the, the pride they exude when they talk about the achievements of their teams, the passion they have when they defend their team against anyone who dares to speak ill. All of these are characteristic of people who are true soccer fans. Now, 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 one thing you'll never ever see in soccer is a real f soccer fanatic supporting two local teams at the same time. It, it just doesn't happen. In our country, two of the biggest teams are Orlando Pirates and Kaiser Chiefs. The, the, the biggest sin for a Kaiser Chiefs fan is to, to commit is to support Orlando Pirates. 
It is unthinkable. It is an act that calls one's allegiance um, to their team into question. And now that is the same with us Christians, isn't it? When we become born again, we are in the team of God. And that is the team we identify with. The team we are passionate about. When we are in God's team, we cannot support the worldly team. It is impossible to be in God's team and the team of the world at the same time. And that is the point we'll be seeing this morning. This morning we return to First John. The main point of our passage this morning is that you can't love God and the world. In a similar way that you can't love, um, you, you can't uh, have love for two teams at the same time. If you're really a Christian, you, you can't be for the world and for God. It would call your allegiance to God into question. Last week we were called to love, to, to love other believers. But, but there's a love that God hates. Uh, God hates a love for the world. It is completely contrary to love for God. Open your Bibles, as I said, to First John chapter 2, verse 12 to 17. This morning, I have two questions for you. Who are you and what do you love? Who are you and what do you love? I hope that the word of God encourages you by reminding you of who you are in Christ. And I hope it challenges you to love God with a zeal that surpasses any soccer fan's zeal for their team. First John chapter 2, verse 12 to 17, this is what it says. I read from the ESV. Follow me as I read God's word. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but it's from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is God's word. Our text this morning is divided into two parts. In, in, in verses 12 to verse 14, we are given an encouragement. We are reminded of who we are in Christ. In verses 15 to verse 17, we are given an exhortation. Do not love the world. Instead, we are called to love God and to do his will. Let us look at the first division of this passage, an encouragement here. And this is the encouragement we see in verses 11 to 14. This is the encouragement that you are a child of God in Christ. You are a child of God in Christ. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you are a child of God. 
This is your identity. John wants you to know that we are who we are because we who we are is so important in determining how we live. In other words, if I'm a Kaiser Chiefs fan, that's part of who I am. And that will completely inform my attitude and my actions when I watch my team play. Uh, Something far more significant is true in this passage. In Christ, you're a child of God. That's what is true about you. That's your identity. And what is true about you must inform what you do. In verses 15 to 17, we are told not to love the world. But, but it's our identity in Christ that fuels obedience to this command. And so John takes pains to drive home our identity in Christ before he moves on to the command. And he does this by using poetry. He says, I'm writing to you, little children. I'm writing to you, fathers. I'm writing to you, young men. I write to you, children. I write to you, fathers. I write to you, young men. Notice the parallelism here and the reputation in these verses. What, What is John trying to do here? He's trying to give us and his readers assurance. He wants them to to know he assumes they are all true believers. He addresses his readers as children throughout the letter. If you look at chapter 2, verse 1 and verse 28, chapter 3, verse 7 and verse 18, chapter 4, verse 4, and chapter 5, verse 21, he uses the word children to address his readers. He's not referring to kids here. This is how he addresses the whole church. They are his children in the faith. And that's also, that also makes them children of God, as we'll see here. John's assuming his readers are true believers. He's driving that home by calling them children over and over again. But, 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 but just to make it clear that he's referring to everybody in the church, he addresses the old and the young among them. He addresses fathers twice which in that culture would have included the mothers. He addresses young men twice, which also would have included the young women. He's assuming everybody in the church are true believers from young to old. That is their true identity. But he's more specific here than that. Uh, There are basically three things about their identity in Christ that he wants them to be clear about. These three things all relate to his exhortation in verses 15 to verse 17. Remember, what is true about you informs what you do. Who you are makes a difference in how you live. First of all, this is what he reminds them. He reminds them, he says, your sins are forgiven. This is the first thing that is true about who you are in Christ is the fact that you are forgiven. Look at verse 12. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. (laughs) One commentator said this this simply means you are forgiven because of what Christ did for you. His blood cleanses you from all sin, chapter 1, verse 7. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sin, chapter 2, verse 2. Who are you? 
You are forgiven because Christ died for your sins. That's the most important thing about you. Your identity must be bound up in the central truth of the gospel. And it must inform everything in your life, the way you think, the way you feel, the way you act. In verse 15, we are told not to love the world. Why would we want to love the world when God loved us so much that he sent his son into the world to lay down his life for us? Why would we want to live in sin when Christ has died for our sins? Our identity is central to the way we live. The second truth he reminds them is that you know the eternal God. You know the eternal God. This is the second thing that is true about those in Christ um, is that they know the eternal God. In, in verse 13a and verse 14a, John says to his readers, you know him who is from the beginning. You know him who is from the beginning. And this is speaking about the eternal son of God, Jesus Christ. In verse 13c, he tells them, you know the father. Remember what Jesus said in, in, in John chapter 17, verse 3? This is what he says. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. True believers have eternal life. They, they know the eternal God through Jesus Christ. And knowing this truth deeply is so critical to the way we live. Later in verse 17 of this passage in 1 John, John tells us that the world is passing away along with its desires. It's crazy for us to love the things of this world, that they won't last. We are loved by the eternal God. We, we know the eternal God. It, it only makes sense for us to love the things of eternal significance. Who we are must inform how we live. Thirdly, the, the third thing that is true about those who are in Christ is this, is you have overcome the devil. You have overcome the devil. Uh, this is where the poetry in these verses really shines. In verse 13, we learn that true believers have overcome the evil one. But in verse 14, the, the poetry highlights how we have overcome the evil one. Listen to this. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Now, notice the parallel ideas here. Both verses are talking about overcoming the evil one. But we are given more information in verse 14. We, we, we call this intensification or heightening in biblical studies. Why have we overcome the, evil, the, the devil? Because we are strong. But why are we strong? Because God's word abides in us. But what does that all mean? Well, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 to 15, we are told that Christ took 
on flesh and blood so that through his death he might destroy the one who is the power of death. And that is the devil. And deliver us, uh, all of us, uh, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Christ dealt Satan a fatal blow. His days are numbered. When we believed the gospel, the power of the devil was overcome in our lives. And that gospel, that the word of God abides in us believers. It makes us strong. It continues to give us strength. That's what John means when he tells us we've overcome the evil one. Well, let me put it another way. At CBC, we are constantly talking about the gospel going deep in God's people. We, we, we not only believe the gospel when we are saved, that the gospel that saves us continues to shape the way we live and the way we view the world. It, it shapes our worldview. It, it shapes our perspective in, in all things. When we believed the gospel, the power of Satan was overcome. But as we continue to grow in our understanding and belief of the gospel, we experience less of Satan's power in our lives. We have overcome the evil one because of Christ. Uh, that's part of your identity as a child of God. And that should inform the way you live. The enemy wants us to indulge the desires of the eyes and the pride of possessions. As, as, as verse 16 says, But in Christ, the evil one, has been overcome. It doesn't make any sense for us to overcome the devil's schemes. Our identity as a child of God must inform the way we live. That's why John spends all of this time. That's why John composes these powerful poetic verses. He wants us to really get our identity in Christ before he gives us a really strong command not to love the world. Uh, do, you, do you want to know one of the main differences between Christianity uh, and most religions of the world? It's where they place the role of works. All religions think works are important. The, the Bible is no different. The Bible is full of commands as well. But the Bible always starts with what God has done in Christ, not what we, what we should do for God. It tells us in, in chapter 3, verse 16 of 1 John, he laid down his life for us. Then the Bible moves to who we are in Christ, our identity. We are forgiven. We know God and we've overcome the evil one. It's only after a Christian is solid on what God has done and who they are in Christ that the Bible moves on to what we are to do now. And what we should do what we do should be a result of what God has done and who we are in Christ. And he says, do not love the world. In other words, if we fail to get this order right, we are no different than the other religions of the world. We will be in danger of turning into legalists, of, of adding to the gospel. We'll, we'll constantly be thinking that we don't measure up and, and, and our motivation for doing the right things will flow out of guilt or a desire to perform. You see, following God's command is not burdensome when obedience flows out of what God has done and who we are in Christ. Christian motiv motivation is grounded in our identity in Christ. 
There's a moral test. And passing the moral test is part of where we get assurance of salvation. But good works don't save us. God saves us. Following the will of God flows out of knowing the love of God. I hope that you, you, you got that. Following the will of God flows out of knowing the love of God. First things first, who are you? That's the question, right? And John gives true believers in Christ the answer, you are a child of God. Uh, that's our identity. And uh, that's the encouragement we need before we move on to the exhortation of verses 15 to 17. <laughs> so we see the encouragement in verses 12 to, to 14 that you are a child of God. Then John moves on now to the exhortation. Here's the exhortation in verses 15 to 17. He says, do not love the world. Do not love the world. Now, the exhortation is, don't love the world. Look at verse 15. He says, don't, do not love the world or the things in the world. Other things in the world. And John gives us two reasons. Really, there are three reasons. We, we, we just covered the first foundational reason, right? We, we shouldn't love the world because we are children of God in Christ. But there are two more specific reasons given in verse 15 to 17. First of all, here's the first reason. First of all, you can't love God and the world. You can't love God and the world. The first one is this. It is the fact that you cannot hold the hand of God and the hand of the world at the same time. This reason is found in the second half of verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Why? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Or in other words, if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. You can't love God and the world at the same time. In the same way that you can't love Kaiser Chiefs and cheer for Alonda Pirates at the same time. That this is the main point of this whole passage. But what does it mean not to love the world or the things in the world? Well, the things of the world are the desires of the flesh, as we are told in verse 16. But what are the desires of the flesh? They are desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions. But what are the desires of the eyes and the pride and possessions? Well, I'm glad you asked. The desires of the eyes are the ongoing desires for those, for those things that are opposed to God and his ways. From time to time, we all desire things that are opposed to God and his ways. But what's being described here is an ongoing desire, an ongoing love for the world. And the pride in possessions is the ongoing pride in having things that are opposed to God and his ways. So we might define love of the world this way. The ongoing desires or, for or, or pride in things that are opposed to God and his ways. To go back to our sports metaphor, the world and its values are like opponents to God and his values. The, the world and its values are the other team. That's what I mean when I say the ongoing desire for things that are opposed to God and his ways. 
that the world and God are opponents. You can't love both if you really love either. To risk being simplistic, the desires of the eyes are ongoing desires for things like sex, money, and power and possessions. Now, don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with sex in the context of marriage. But when a person lusts after someone that isn't their spouse, that is the desire for something that is opposed to God and his ways. When that is the ongoing continual pattern of his life, and he doesn't seem to want to change, that's a problem. You can't have an ongoing love of lust and love of God at the same time. In other words, uh, love of lust and love of, of God cannot coexist. I know there are a number of people that struggle with lust, but the question is, do you love lust or do you love God? What do you love? That's the question. That there's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with money in and of itself. But when a person continues to think that about accumulating more and more money and spends a lot of his time or her time spending his money, that's a problem. You can't have an ongoing love for money and a love for God at the same time. One indicator of a love for money is whether or not you are generous. What do you love? That's the question. There's nothing wrong with position. Right? There's nothing wrong with having a high-profile job or a good reputation in your high school, in your school. There's nothing wrong with being a really good, uh, be, being really good at a particular sport. But when a person continues to care more about what others think of their position than what God thinks of them, that's a problem. You can't have an ongoing love for your reputation and your love for God. Love for sex, money, and position are completely opposite to love for God. Because the characteristics of love for the world and love for God are completely opposed to each other. Think about it. That the love of God in others, the love of God is, is an other-centered kind of love. God loved us so much that he gave his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Our love for God is directed first toward God and obeying his commands, then towards other believers. God's love and our love for God are sacrificial in nature. They are directed towards others. Love for the world and the things of the world are me-centered. They are centered on, on the unholy trinity, me, myself, and I. They, they are focused on my pleasure, my position in life, my power or influence. You see, love for the world is completely opposed to love for God. You can't love God and love the world at the same time. It doesn't make any sense. They are opponents. They are opposed to each other. We started out by talking about how much soccer fans are devoted to their teams. And hopefully you agree that it would be ridiculous for a Kaiser Chiefs fan to cheer for Pirates during the derby, right? There's no way that that individual can, can truly love both teams. 
So if you saw someone who has a card-carrying fan of Kaiser Chiefs wearing a pirate's gear from head to toe, you would surely question their love for Kaiser Chiefs. And rightly so, because you can't love both at the same time. Though it sounds ridiculous to imagine, this is how so many Christians live um, their lives today. This is how many Christians, uh, how, how their lives look like. They have one foot in the world and one foot apparently in God. They want the best of both worlds according to them. We give lip service to loving God, but we are really cheering for God's opponent. Our actions sometimes show that we love the world. James says that love for the world is enmity with God. In other words, when you love the world, the sinful world, the worldliness, um, participate in the worldliness of the world while you're calling yourself a Christian, you are inadvertently making yourself an enemy of God. You can't love God and the world at the same time. Who are you? And what do you love? John is telling us that if we are a child of God, we shouldn't love the world. And the first reason for that is that you can't love the world and love, uh, you can't love God and love the world. The second reason he gives is that the world won't last. Think about it. The world won't last. It is passing away. It is temporary. Look at verse 17. It says, The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. We, we, we shouldn't love the world because the things of the world are passing away. They, they, they won't last. What will last? Will the things we lust after last? Will our money and positions last? Will our worldly reputation last? None of these things will last. It's an emphatic no. They are all passing away. The, the, the things that, are, uh, that last are the things found in the word of God. The, the things that last are, 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 are the people of God. When we invest our lives in doing the will of God found in the word of God and we invest our lives in loving the people of God, we will live eternally with our glorious God. Are you investing in eternal things? Are you investing in faithfulness to God's word and to God's will? Are you investing in God's people? What if I were to ask those closest to you what would they say would your children say that you love the things that last or would they say you love the things that are passing away would your spouse or your co-workers say that you love the things that last or would they say you love the things that are passing away how do you spend your time uh, what are your priorities what are you most passionate about one of my 
lecturers in seminary once said, I learned a long time ago that my students won't remember everything I teach them, but they'll remember what I'm passionate about. What are you passionate about? That's probably what you love. Is it temporal or is it eternal? Is it God? Is it his word? Is it his people? Or is it things that are opposed to God and his ways? Who are you and what do you love? Those are the questions I live with you today. You see, if you're a child of God, you are called to love God. You can't love God and the world. But for those of you who do love God and the things that God loves, there's a really encouraging message for you this morning. You will abide forever. And you can know that you really are a Christian. Amen. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, what a joy indeed it is to know that through Christ we have been made your children. And such we are. Thank you for reconciling us to yourself through his death, giving us a new identity, giving us a new name, saints. Thank you for the work that you've done in our lives. May we rejoice whenever we think about the fact that we were once lost, but now we are found. We were once blind, but now we see. And Lord, in this newfound identity, may we live in such a way that your glory is displayed, your glory is seen. May you be praised in every way. For the sake of your name and your kingdom, we pray all this. Amen.